Welcome, historian listeners, to another episode. And tonight we are privileged to have the company of Christopher Phillips, uh, a professor in international relations um, at uh, University of Mary University in London, if I'm correct, and uh, has written an amazing book about two years ago called The Battle for Syria, which a war which began in 2011. In small town called Dara and has had an unbelievable death toll, really truly tragic. And with uh, the situation in Ukraine today, with some of the actors that are involved in this uh, conflict, um, we'll see how they're all interrelated. But welcome, Chris. Thank you very much for popping along to the historians. Thanks so, so much for having me. Fantastic. Okay, so maybe I'll let you give us a little bit of an introduction um, as to what exactly is going on in Syria. It's uh, sort of in the centre of the, the Middle East and surrounded by all sorts of state actors that have had an influence in the course of their history. Sure. Well, I mean, the... A, a big question, of course, is where do you start? I mean, you started in 2011, which is as good a place as any. Uh, what you've, you've got in Syria still today, actually, is, is a civil war um, that broke out in 2011. Primarily, it was, or at least initially, it was um, a domestic conflict between the two sides, uh, those who wanted to overthrow the autocratic regime of President Bashar al-Assad uh, and those who wanted him to stay in power. Uh, and that was the, the, the basic premise of it. What, what initially began as peaceful protests against Assad was quite violently crushed by, um, the, uh, by the government, by, by the supporters of Assad. Uh, and that led some in the opposition movement, but not all of them, to take up arms. And, uh, um, and that turned into a violent struggle. It's now, interesting, sorry, that in, in, similar in lots of ways to Iraq as well, where you've got like a minority mm -hmm. um, religious sect that are controlling uh, the, the masses. It's uh, the, the Alawi sect is the Assad regime and the rest of the country is Sunni. So mm -hmm. I suppose it's a Sunni uprising essentially against the... It is, but, but I mean, I, I think it's a little bit more complex than that in the sense that you're, 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 you're absolutely right that um, one of the grievances that the opposition had against the Assad and his regime was that it was dominated by this religious sect, which is a, a branch of Shiism, Shia Islam, um, that's known as the Alawites. Uh, and they only represent about 10% of the population of Syria. But the Assad regime, which is actually constructed originally by Bashar's father, Hafez, um, who was president from 1970 to 2000, wasn't just the minority regime. They, they'd got other people who weren't from the Alawi sect to support them. So there might be other religious groups, so Christians, for example, 10% of the population. Um, Druze, which is another sort of like minority Shia sect, about 3% of the population. And some Sunnis as well. It wasn't that every single Sunni was against the, the government. Actually, you'd got, you know, some of the prosperous middle classes, some people that had done well out of the Assad regime and they stayed loyal. So on the one hand, you can say absolutely, yeah, the vast majority of the opposition were Sunni, but it wasn't like every single pe person that supported the government was not Sunni. There were some Sunnis there, but there are also these other groups, obviously the Alawis, but Christians and Druze as well. So in many ways, it was primarily a political 
dispute on this question of do you want Assad in charge or not? And those who tended to support him did have, you know, particular religious backgrounds or particular economic backgrounds. Um, and those that opposed him also tended to have certain religious or economic backgrounds. But it was primarily about this question of should Assad be in power or not? Because what, you know, it, it wasn't a question of, right, we don't want the Sunnis in our country or we don't want the Alawis in our country. It was very much we don't want this ruling group to be in charge. Um, and whether or not you believe that or not might be affected by your religion. And Hafez's father probably ruled over a relatively prosperous country. So they would have had oil reserves, but they're dwindling, was it? The, the regime came under, I suppose, financial pressure um, when Bashar took over. Is that right? That's right. I mean, so uh, as, as Middle Eastern countries go, Syria is relatively poor. It doesn't have huge oil reserves. It did have significant numbers that it found in the 70s and really exploited those well in the 80s. And you're right, his father Hafez made the most of those reserves, but they, they were dwindling even, you know, whilst he was still in power in the 1990s. And Bashar, when he came to power, realised, I've got, I've got to reform the economy in order to keep things going because the old system that his father had set up didn't work anymore. And that actually was partly, his part of some of the problems that he, you know, that, um, that, he, that he helped cause, which was because his, his solution was a kind of uh, a slightly odd version of a kind of, you know, neoliberal economics, whereby they cut a lot of government jobs, a lot of government subsidies, uh, in order to boost the economy. But at the same time, they didn't do the other side of uh, neoliberal economics, which is actually allow a degree of economic freedom so that you get an entrepreneurial class coming and, and, and you know, using that, uh, that, that freedom to, uh, you know, to, to you know, make money and make businesses that, that could employ people instead of the shrinking state sector. So actually what you got in Syria under Bashar was a shrinking state sector, increased unemployment, increased poverty because there were fewer jobs and you know fewer subsidies uh, on basic things like bread and rice and stuff like that. But it wasn't actually being replaced by a prosperous, you know, um, liberal economy. Instead, what was happening was you got a very small number of elites tied to the regime, basically being crony capitalists, making a lot of money. And, and, and showing off with it. So you went to central Damascus and central Aleppo, which are both cities that I lived in prior to the war. Um, and you've got like, you know, big tower blocks, you know, big shiny shopping malls emerging. You've got people suddenly uh, rocking up in Porsches and Ferraris, um, which, you know, for a historically socialist state was a real rarity, but the people driving them wasn't, you know, the ordinary citizens, they were people tied to the government. And of course that increased resentment even more against the, uh, you know, against the Assad regime. And when were you there? So what, what had you in Syria then? You, you were living there for a while. Yes, yeah, so I lived in Syria for two, two years, but different years. So I, I lived there, um, I lived in Aleppo 2004 to five. I was a, I was a school teacher, actually. That's how I first yeah. discovered Syria. Um, and then I went back to live in Damascus in 2007 to eight st to study Arabic there. Um, so, and, and I spent a fair bit of time traveling around the country and doing research. Um, uh, so I got a good sense of the country, but of course, Nowhere near as well, obviously, as the, the many excellent uh, Syrian uh, scholars and commentators that have been writing and, uh, and written about this conflict. And would you have any, at the time, would you have had any sense of tensions that were building? Or was it 
still far away. Well, you know what? It's one of those things that, in hindsight, you 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 see things, right? And um, and so no, the, the short answer is no. At the time, you didn't see it, and you didn't see it because obviously it was an autocratic regime, it was tightly controlled. You know, if you asked people what they think of the government, I, I research politics, so I spend a lot of time asking people like, what do you think of politics or think of the government? They all love President Assad. They all love President Assad, and genuinely, some did, and they were the ones that ended up being loyal in the in the civil war. And others clearly didn't. And, you know, when the opportunity presented itself, they turned on the government. But the, the little things that you that you realise in retrospect are quite interesting. And one thing that I, I really remember was whilst I was living there they, the second time, they'd recently um, bought a new set of uh, trains from, from South Korea, which are these nice shiny trains that were much faster than the old decrepit Soviet trains that they got. And it meant that you could travel from... Damascus to Aleppo in about four hours by train, which was you know quite quick, and that was good. And I remember going on this train and thinking, oh, this is wonderful. It was heavily subsidised. I think it cost about um, you know two euros for 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 a train train ticket for four hour train ticket and a very pleasant new you know um, uh, train carriage with you know they brought you a meal in this. It was like being on an aeroplane. And I remember you know we'd we'd go in this train through the countryside. And little boys all along the train track would throw rocks at the train and smash the windows. And you'd ask people, like, why are they doing this? And people on the train would just be like, oh, you know, they'd be quite snobby. And they'd just be like, oh, you know, they're just the peasants. Like, you know, but you think, I, OK, well, you think a few things. Firstly, that disdainful attitude. You know, I didn't realise it, but I was with the elite, the people that could afford. It's actually a very small amount of money, two euros or whatever, to be on this train. But not everyone could afford that. In fact, most people couldn't. And the people throwing the rocks were kids who knew they would never right. get two euros to be able to get on this train. So they were happy to trash it because they knew they'd never use it. Yeah. And they were resentful of the people using it that they could never get access to. And that, you know, one was one of those things that actually, you know, those people in those really poor areas along the railway track, along, you know, in between the major cities, they were the areas that were really lost out under Bashar al-Assad's rule, and they were the areas like Gerat, the place that you mentioned at the very beginning, that ultimately rose up against him. Yeah, well, interesting observation. So, okay, so when we're, we're, we're talking about Syria, like, most civil wars are somewhat complex, you know, they're never all that black and white, and you could say Syria became very colourful in that there were a lot of different flags getting involved. Oh. So what what brought all these? And explain to the, the listeners the, the different countries that have, have got involved in the conflict. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, the, the easiest way of explaining it, and it is, you're right, and it, you know, a hugely complex civil war. I think, you know, maybe only the Lebanese civil war of, of the 1970s and 80s has the same level of complexity. And, and even then, I think Syria trumps that in the end. So... I apologise to your readers in advance if, if I lose them, but I'll, I'll do my best to keep it simple. So the, the best way of understanding it is really, when I, as, I, as I said at the very beginning, you know, you had these two domestic players, which was the Assad regime and the opposition. But that opposition fragmented three ways as well, creating basically four domestic players on the board. You had the Assad regime, you had the, the mainstream opposition, let's call them. You had Kurdish forces, who didn't want to really work with the opposition because they didn't trust them. Um, they didn't like Assad either, for historical reasons. And then you got ISIS, which emerged from the um, um, from the the opposition, uh, partly from the opposition and partly the opposite part, the radical part of the opposition joining up with 
radicals coming over from Iraq. So you had these four domestic, you know, fighters all fighting one another at the same time, you know, in, in different strengths. And then on top of that, you had different external actors who wanted certain sides to win either the war overall or in particular parts of Syria. So very loosely speaking, you got Assad's historical allies, Russia and Iran, uh, and the Lebanese militia Hezbollah, who all long historical allies of Assad wanted to make sure he survived and so sent various levels to support, which changed over time. Then the opposition was broadly supported by um, Assad's historical enemies, which was um, Saudi Arabia. And then friends that had become enemies quite quickly, um, which were Turkey and Qatar. Um, and of course, the United States, who has long opposed um, the, uh, the US. Now that's kind of relatively straightforward, but it's when you talk about the other domestic players that things get more complicated. So very loosely, you then have the creation of ISIS, which the United States identified as a greater threat than Assad. And so stopped really getting so involved in, in supporting the opposition and instead poured its attention onto ISIS. And so kind of gave up on the, the, the goal of supporting the opposition, instead just said, right, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna focus on ISIS. And to help defeat ISIS, they didn't want to send money to Assad and weapons to Assad because Assad was their enemy and, yeah. and doing awful things to his population. So instead they supported the Kurds. Seems to make, seems to make it straightforward, but <laughs> because Turkey historically has a problem with Kurdish nationalists, they were very, very worried that their friend and ally, the US, was supporting the Kurds, even though they're fight, you know, using them to fight ISIS. So Turkey then sort of, you know, also sort of stopped the war against Assad and instead effectively focused its attentions on fighting the Kurds. So it took an element of the opposition and trained them and turned them around and said, right, you're not fighting Assad anymore, you're now fighting the Kurds. So you get this very strange situation where you've got, you know, allies, your NATO allies, the United States and Turkey, both ostensibly saying, we don't like Assad and we don't like ISIS. But Turkey, you know, using its allies, the Syrian opposition, to fight the Kurds, who are the same people that the United States are giving money and weapons to, to fight ISIS. So, you know, and that, you know, uh, uh, you know, that is in microcosm the complexities of the Syrian civil war, which ultimately boils down to this point, that many of the international actors involved had different priorities, both inside Syria and in the wider region. And they were willing to throw their various allies, whoever they were in Syria, under the bus to, to achieve those. And it was only ever really Russia and Hezbollah and Iran that had one clear single purpose throughout, which was we must protect Assad. And they never wavered from that. Everything else that went on was background. Whereas all the other players, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the United States, Turkey, they always had other priorities. You know, they didn't want Assad in power for sure, but they were willing to, you know, deprioritize that to achieve other goals, either inside Syria or in the wider Middle East. And if you were literally one of the fighters uh, standing in the middle of Damascus, where you would have no idea where the bullets are coming from. <laughs> was, I, I think, I think I, in, in all honesty, I, it's, I think it was a little bit more 
zooming out from that. I think the people in Damascus, or the, the, the areas where they're fighting, Deba, Damascus, Aleppo, they knew exactly where the bullets were coming, coming from there. They knew on their front line who they should be, who they were fighting and why. But it was more the kind of the bigger, the, the political, you know, the people who were sending their money and weapons, whether they were based in Qatar or based in Turkey, whatever it was, they wouldn't, they couldn't rely on the people supporting them because they, they were quite right in thinking, well, do we trust you? Are you, you know, are you actually invested in this? Do you actually really want to topple Assad? Are you just, you know, giving us a little bit of, you know, money and weapons to keep us fighting, but actually you might sell us out? And, and that happened a lot. I mean, Turkey sold out the, um, the rebels in Aleppo, for example, like for, you know, you, you might recall in 2016, um, uh, Assad reconquered the, the eastern half of Aleppo, which for a long time you know, had been populated by rebels yeah. that were armed and, and, and funded by Turkey. And one day the money and the, the weapons stopped coming because Turkey had done a deal with Russia, Assad's ally, to stop supporting them, provided Russia gave them a free run against the Kurds. And they did that. And so, you know, at the end of 2016... Assad reconquered Eastern Aleppo, and these rebels that had support for Turkey for four years were completely sold out and, and, and left, left, left out to dry, and that's what happened. God, a whole load of proxy wars, uh, you know. Absolutely. On, on a much simpler scale, that's what's happening in, in Ukraine, but it seems a lot more as East, East versus West, whereas this is, God, that's really, really complex yeah. and a very hard one to, to solve because there isn't, there isn't any, any real solution. And obviously they haven't agreed to a solution at this point. I mean, you, you mentioned that in the book, 21 million people was the population prior to the commencement of, of, of the war. And then over 500,000 recorded dead. Yes, Probably yeah. could be higher figure than that again. Mm. And how many million refugees? How many? So uh, the, 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 the biggest problem is that the, the, the figures aren't actually accurate. You know, you know aren't, 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 sorry, can't, can't be verified. So you know, even that figure, 21 million um, before the war, we don't know. That was just what was in the census. It could have been 23, it could have been 24 million. Um, there's one of these problems that actually a lot of the, the, the numbers that people are giving, you're like, well, hang on, is that right? So, so for example, the, the number of refugees, well, officially, it's something like five and a half million refugees. But Turkey say they've got about 4 million just in Turkey. Um, Germany say they've got a million in Germany. But you've also got at least another million in Lebanon and another 900,000 or so in Jordan, which adds up to more than the, the 5.5 million official refugees. So you've got people that are kind of, um, you know, might not be registered refugees. There might be people that, especially in Lebanon and Jordan and Turkey, are passing back and forth over the border, you know, uh, regularly. Um, so we don't actually know. I mean, I think what we what we do know is it's a lot of people who have been forced to leave their homes. I think the best way, the, the best statistic I heard was uh, that I read was that fifty percent of Syrians have had to flee their home, whether that's to leave the country permanently or whether they're internally displaced and live somewhere else in Syria. But that's an enormous number of people. That's about you know ten and a half um, million people, maybe eleven million people. On the move, which well, is fortunately speaking, it's like the, the whole situation is worse than the whole Second World War. Yeah, yeah you know? quite. I mean, you think about that's, that's you know, speak to your, to your listeners, that's double the you know, twice the population of Ireland have been yeah. forced to, to leave their homes, which is you know, phenomenal in terms of in, in terms of numbers and, and and incredibly depressing. You know, it's go back to your earlier point about when I was living there, 
Syria was, you know, an, auto an autocracy. It, it certainly was, and, and I'm absolutely not going to wax lyrical about how wonderful it, it, you know, the government was before the war or anything like that. Like it was autocratic, but it was stable. It was friendly. It was um, very cultured. Uh, you know, and uh, it's a real tragedy what's happened to that country. It's been, been you know, decimated, and, and a huge amount of that is down to Bashar al-Assad, you know, the president himself, who has waged a war on his own people. But it is. Um, you know, still a tragic, tragic but, event. But he, he has no choice but to fight for the bitter end anyway himself. And, and would you think, okay, so obviously go over to Ukraine now for a second. Mm -hmm, and sure. Russia's dragged into this and it's got to put all its resources there. Mm. If Russia's pull out of helping Assad, does Assad fall? Or what has, what has to happen? Like ultimately, he can't stay in power forever, but what needs to happen in order for that big shift? Or do you think he will? Uh, so, I, so the, the, I mean, to answer your question, uh, the, Russia's presence in Syria is actually relatively small. Um, it's it, what it deployed in Syria that was essential was its air force, because of course, you know, rebels don't have airplanes. So as soon as it did that, it basically gave Assad this competitive advantage. They didn't send many troops. Most of the troops were sent by Iran and Hezbollah. So they're still there. So even if you know, worse came to it. I mean, actually, I don't, don't think so much. If Russia would pull out its forces from Syria to send them to Ukraine, it doesn't need to do that. What would be a greater risk to Assad would be if Putin were toppled. In, you know, if, if the fallout of the Ukraine war was some kind of internal coup or popular revolution or something like that in Russia that toppled Putin, that would be a problem because it's very much Putin's war in Russia. You know, if you know, a, a future Russian government probably wouldn't see the advantage of staying in Syria and so might might leave. And that would be the, the bigger risk. But that said, I don't think it would automatically mean that Assad would depart because Russia in some way has done its job, which is it's defeated the rebels. The rebels were, in 2015, before the, the, the Russians intervened directly then, the rebels were a decent fighting force. They weren't quite at the point of, of, of toppling Assad. I think it's you know it wasn't like he was about to collapse and Russia came in. But I think he was reaching the tipping point where he may not have won had they not intervened at that point. His, his, his military was creaking at the seams a bit. And, you know, were, were they to do what they did, which is basically reconquer not all of Syria, but most of the, the, the populated areas and the cities, places like Aleppo and Damascus. Um, that was only made possible by Russia's interventions. But, but they did successfully militarily defeat the rebels. So if Russia suddenly went, those rebels would have to reconstitute themselves all from, from scratch. And as we've mentioned, you know, many have now fled the country. They're refugees. They're fighting for Turkey against the Kurds. They're, they're doing different things. It's not like Russia's just holding up, you know, everything with two pillars. You pull the pillars away and it all comes down. You've still got an Iranian presence. You've still got a Hezbollah presence. You've got a rebuilt, rebuilt Assad army that's there. It would take several years and a lot of reorganization for the rebels to get back to that 2015 position. And even then, they may not succeed. Okay, okay. And then, so the Kurds, I mean, God love the Kurds, they're one of the most embattled peoples on the planet. I mean, it's every, they're at war with everyone. Well, the, you know, the, the Kurds, I mean, I'm actually writing a, 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 another book at the moment on, uh, on conflict in general in the Middle East. I'm, I'm, I'm focusing a little bit on the Kurds. And of course, you know, if you look at the Kurds, not just in Syria, but in, in the other three countries that they live in, Turkey, Iraq and Iran, 
they're incredibly unfortunate. They, they lost out when the Middle East was carved up by the colonial powers at the end of the First World War. Yeah, Sykes um, Pico, yeah. yeah, you know. Um, in fairness, not many people were talking about having an independent Kurdish country, but what they did was they deposited all the Kurds in four separate countries in which, even though there's a huge number of them, about 30 million in total, um, they were always going to be, they always, they became minority in all four of these countries. Um, so, and, and all four governments discriminated against them and, and didn't recognize Kurdish language or Kurdish culture, which on the one hand sparked a reaction, which led to a, a, you know, an enhancement of Kurdish nationalism and more groups taking up arms and saying, well, look, we want independence or autonomy or something. But on the other hand, the deck was stacked against them because they were made minorities in these countries. So, you know, it, it almost structurally the situation they're in um, almost leads inevitably to some level of conflict, but it also leads to a situation where it's very, very hard for them to ever win that conflict because they're always in the minority. And ironically, the most success they've had in countries like Iraq, where they've got some autonomy, and then in Syria as a consequence of the civil, Syrian civil war, is only when the central governments have been weakened by conflict themselves, they've had enough space to actually, you know, carve out a degree of autonomy without the threat of that central government army. Whereas in Iran and Turkey, where the central government remains strong, you know, much larger Turk Kurdish communities have just been crushed. Right. Okay. Okay. And I mean, you can't obviously put all the blame on the sites Pico uh, back in, in 1917, but like uh, at what, you know, how could that have been drawn differently that where that might have avoided some of the wars that we've seen since? Well, you know, it's, it's one of the questions I talk about with my, with my students, you know, and actually as a history, history podcast, it's a really interesting one. You know, we also have to get the balance right between structure and agency. You know, it's un unquestionable that the, the, all the states in the Middle East that were created by colonialism, which isn't all of them, like Saudi Arabia wasn't, Iran wasn't, um, and to an extent Turkey wasn't because, you know, they, they carved out. Um, they, they rejected the, the, the colonial boundaries and fought their own war of independence. But the majority of the others were car carved out by, by colonial powers. And they certainly didn't, you know, set them up on the route to statehood very effectively. Like the borders were questionable where they put them. They put a lot of, you know, uh, different peoples in the same in, in the same state. But they also then empowered particular groups you know, to rule in an autocratic or domineering way, which didn't bring all those groups in. So, you know, you, there are lots of multinational, multi-ethnic states in the world, places like Switzerland, places like the United States, you know, you know, having lots of different peoples in one place doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get conflict. But the way the colonial powers set up the governments made it more likely. And then on top of that, you have what happened afterwards, which is, you know, after you've got these relatively weak colonial states, you've got things like, particular autocrats come to power, people like Saddam Hussein in Iraq, people like Hafez and Bashar al-Assad in Syria, Islamic Republic in Iran, and before that, the Shah, you know, and, and in a different way, the extreme Turkish nationalism of, of Mustafa Kemal Ataturk in Turkey, which are just uncompromising, and they're not interested in extending any kind of inclusion for the Kurds. They, they see them as the enemy within and, and, and frequently repress them. And then on top of that, which is the domestic situation, you get outsiders, rather like in the Syrian civil war, making matters worse. You know, you've got regional players. All the Kurdish movements have at different times been sponsored by other regional players. So you have 
the ridiculous situation whereby the Iranian government frequently supports Kurdish nationalists in Iraq, the Iraqi government frequently supports Kurdish nationalism, nationalists in Iran, but they oppress their own Kurdish groups. You know, um, and then you've got the international, the external players. You know, the, the United States has frequently you know, offered some support to Kurdish nationalist groups in Iraq, more recently Syria, um, and then sold them out and been like, oh, actually, we're not interested in helping you anymore and just walked away from them, you know, which makes the situation worse. So, yeah, I mean, um, and, and on top of that, in fairness, um, Kurdish nationalist groups have been divided amongst themselves. Like, you know, you've got extreme, not extreme, but quite leftist groups like the PKK in Turkey uh, and the PYD, now their ally in Syria, and more conservative groups like um, the, the KDP, in Iraq, uh, Mustafa Barzani, who's been the, the, the leader there for a long time, and they have fought one another and they have backed different groups. You know, in Syria, you've got one group that is armed and supported by the PKK and another group that's armed and supported by the KDP, and they fight one another rather than uniting against the common non-Kurdish enemy. And, and, and you know, that that's also greatly contributes to the problem. How do you solve that you know that's from, from from so many years i mean i suppose give it like where where is syria today so mm. right right now you know where are the lines drawn where where is the front and where are the battles being fought yeah and that's a great question because it's not the conflict's not over but it's it's reaching a point that we might call it more of a cold conflict or a frozen conflict you know there hasn't been any fighting since 2020 which is you know sort of well, well and that was early 2020 so it's been two and a half years now since there's been any serious fighting um so broadly speaking, um, of those four groups I talked to you about, ISIS have been wiped out. They're, they're off the map now. You know, their caliphate, as they called it, has been destroyed. And most of the area that they once controlled is now controlled by the Kurdish forces, or at least a force dominated by Kurds. It's, not, it's unfair to just call them Kurds. There are other non-Kurdish groups there, but they're certainly dominated by, by Kurdish forces in the east of the country. It's not that widely populated. It's maybe only four million people there. Um, but but east of the Euphrates River is controlled by those Kurdish forces. And importantly, they have aerial support from the United States. So other forces like Assad and Turkey, indeed, don't go into there unless they get a green light from the United States. The United States will never give Assad that green light. They have given Turkey the green light on occasion to, to nibble at little bits of Kurdish territory. So that's one area, the Kurdish controlled area. The second area, the largest area, is the area controlled by Assad. With, with help from Russia and Iran, Assad reconquered the, the most populated part of Syria, which is western Syria. So the two main cities of Aleppo and Damascus, um, all the supporting cities, Homs, Hama, Dara, where the revolution began, and the coastal cities of Tartus and Latakia, all controlled by Assad. Quite ruthlessly, but, you know, there is... Life is beginning to get a bit back to normal there. You know, it's a dictatorship, like I said before. It's quite poor. It's heavily sanctioned by the West. Um, the economy isn't really going anywhere. But, like, you know, it's relatively stable. And then you've got pockets in the north. Uh, there are two main pockets. One is the area around Idlib, which is the last area controlled by the rebels, uh, now dominated by some quite extreme Islamists, um, but not as extreme as ISIS. Uh, and they're heavily supported by Turkey. Um, and again, they provide aerial cover for the rebels there. So Assad hasn't been able to reconquer that area because he doesn't want to go to war with Turkey, nor does Russia. And then just 
neighboring those areas, there's three little pockets of territory that are controlled by Turkey via their own rebel forces that they've created um, that were formerly populated by Kurdish forces and the Kurds were pushed out. And now you've got this kind of belt of pro-Turkish uh, Syrian rebel territory. But for all intents and purposes, it's controlled directly by Turkey. And so the rebel areas are, you know, is it possible for people to have a, you know, are there people living there a normal existence, you know, might have a job or may not, is there actually, you know, are schools open or is that only in the Bashar? Bashar al-Assad areas. So, so yes, there is. So um, normal-ish, I think would be the best way of describing it. So you've got a lot of people living there. About 4 million people live in that very small pocket, which right. is the same number as live as the whole eastern Euphrates area controlled by the Kurds. So it's a very, very densely populated area. A lot of refugees fled there. Um, and indeed, Assad, when he reconquered areas like eastern Aleppo, dumped people, either the population that lived there, were all put onto these green buses and driven off and dumped into, into the Idlib area. So it's got a lot of displaced people there. Um, you know, Idlib's a, a, a largest city-ish city, and they have tried to create a degree of normality. So yes, there are schools, there is a, a university, I believe, you know, there are restaurants that are open, there are cafes. Um, but it's poor. It's incredibly poor. Like, you know, you, you, it, it relies entirely on Turkey. It's, it's landlocked in that sense because, you know, the, the, the external borders within Syria are the front line. You know, you've, there are regular raids by, um, by Assad forces. Who still wants to reconquer that area if he can? Um, so, you know, it, it's heavily dependent on aid, mostly from Turkey. Um, there isn't really any trade, there's a little bit of agriculture and things, but it, it's, you know, it's a pretty miserable place. Um, I think most people that live there are grateful that they're not living under Assad's rule. Um, yeah. And, you know, but, but I think most of them would aspire to try to leave if they could, you know, it's not, it, it's not big enough to make up a kind of a proxy republic, you know, kind of, it, yeah. it, 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 it can't be a, it can't be an East Germany. It's not big enough for that. Um, it, it's really just a, a, a pocket that has, again, like I say, heavy support from Turkey. That's what keeps it going. Um, if, if Turkey ever changed its mind, which is possible, because again, rather like um, Russia's involvement is Putin's war, um, Turkey's involvement is heavily linked to President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Uh, if he ever lost power and if he faces an election next year, which he might lose, um, I think a future Turkish government could drop support for the rebels because it's very much seen as his project. And then they'd be in a lot of trouble. Right. OK. OK. And then when you were saying it's it's the Basar um, regime is ruthlessly enforced. OK, yeah. obviously, and you're saying there's, there's an army and they need to recruit people to that army and give them the devastation. There's a good chance you could possibly lose your life. So is this economically driven where people willingly join up with the army or is it drafting? Uh, so originally, originally, I mean, there is, yes, there is a draft. It's a, it's a draft. Um, it's a draft. Um, uh, it's a conscript army. You know, so, okay. so, uh, um, but during the course of the civil war, um, there were huge problems with desertions, with people leaving the country. I mean, a lot of the refugees that fled, you know, in the you know the European um, migrant crisis of 2015-16, were people from Syria who were fleeing the draft that didn't want to go and fight in this war because yeah, they were worried they were going to die. So, um, yeah. so Assad had to supplement his forces with um, Iranian and and, uh, and Hezbollah forces, which you know. Um, he did. Um, most Syrians now 
are in reserve units, they're in um, kind of um, local militia, known as the National Defence Forces, which basically man checkpoints and that kind of thing. But because there's less kind of fighting going on now, there are, there are limited numbers. And what's really interesting is a lot of those people that fought for Assad in the Syrian civil war have now signed up to Russian mercenary groups to go and fight for the Russians right. in Ukraine. And before that, they'd signed for Russian mercenary groups to go and fight for Russian forces in Libya. Um, right. So, you know, so you know, there's a kind of a, an arms economy going on there. Yeah, majority of people now living in Assad Syria aren't under arms. You know, they're not kind of there to to, to fight or anything like that. Their their priorities are trying to make some kind of a living, um, which yeah. is really hard because the economy is really stifled. Um, you know, I think the days of fighting for most of the population are over. Like it was, you know, there was a high point where any young man of a certain age, you know, basically eighteen to forty, was you know, either in in uniform or had fled. Um, and you actually have some really interesting but depressing demographic consolation consequences of that. So, um, you know, you've got families where there are, there's no male breadwinner, you know, so right. you've got a shift in gender roles. A lot of women are going out to work in a conservative country where historically that wasn't the case. Yeah. Um, you know, so things like that are, are certainly changing. It's, it's interesting what you mentioned there, because I mean, obviously people now talk a lot about drone warfare and how everything's getting very mechanized and whatnot. But, well, you know, Prior to that, and what's still going on there, as you said, is the mercenary armies. I mean, this you know started with the famous contractors in Iraq and yes. groups like Blackwater. I mean, it's it's like we've reverted to medieval type warfare. You know, the the kings, yes. you know, small little army, but then they go out to all the towns and say, "Listen, you know, we'll give you X amount uh, to to fight for us." It's really, really like that. Mo most wars are being fought by mercenaries. Yeah, no, I, I, and certainly in parts of the Middle East, and again, another conflict that I've looked at was Yemen and right. that has a very large mercenary force you get a lot of countries um, like for example the United Arab Emirates which has got a very small military and so they did things like they um, had a large Sudanese mercenary force in like around Aden that was sent in to go and sort of you know secure bases for them um, you know so so that, that you know and, and Iran is that you know I talked about Iran and I mentioned earlier Iranian forces um, but a lot of time they weren't actually Iranian fighting in Syria. You know what Iran did was they um, they got um, their own um, uh, proxy forces. They they they, 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 they yeah, I we might call them mercenaries in that sense. You know, but they basically raided refugee camps of their own where there were Pakistani and Afghani Shias that had fled fighting in Pakistan and and, and Afghanistan on their borders, and um, basically trained them up and said to them look if you if you come and fight for us we'll give you iranian citizenship and we'll we'll get you out of the refugee camps and that's what they did so they came and they fought you know a you know a, a core of duty in syria and then came back and were able to become iranian citizens so it was it, it's still a mercenary force in that sense they're being paid but it's not being paid in money they're being paid in in, in opportunity and citizenship okay interesting interesting and um, i suppose to, to look at more of the, the macro picture and uh, the to, to my mind, and from what I can see, we are at the end of the, the unipolar experiment, yes. which was the, you know, the New World Order, Western, you know, society. We're, we're, we're entering into something very, very different. Mm -hmm. and, and was this mostly probably seeded in the Middle East? This might be what you're discussing in your book. I, I don't know, but I'd be interested to, to hear your thoughts about what's going to happen for you, like you and me, you know, you, mm -hmm. you live in the UK, you live in Ireland, 
of what's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, so I completely agree. And actually, uh, 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 as you know from my book, one of my whole hypotheses is that actually Syria, Syria probably should be seen as a symptom, not a cause of the shift from unipolarity to multipolarity. It all, you know, you mentioned it a few times, it all really goes back to the 2003 Iraq war and how much that was a moment of complete hubris from the United States. And, you know, the great irony is that if, if George H.W. Bush created the new world order and America's unipolar moment, you know, by actually very, you know, and I think he's actually one of those, those leaders that deserves a bit more credit than he gets by historians, um, because he actually very carefully um, oversaw the end of the Cold War in a way that wasn't humiliating for the USSR or Russia, was actually kind of not gloating. And the notion of the new world order, at least in theory, was that everyone could be part of it. You know, America dominating for sure, but there was, you know, and what George, his son, George W. Bush did, of course, was undid a lot of that, um, uh, you know, by being much more them and us, rather with us or against, you know, against us, which is, you know, creating, you know, camps once again. But he also uh, poured a huge amount of energy and resources the U.S. didn't really have into a war that wasn't very successful, all the while not fixing its economy, which meant that the U.S. got completely smashed by the 2008 financial crash. And of course, not paying any attention to the rise of China, which was happening at the same time. Yeah. So you you get the Syria civil war breaking out at a time when actually the US had its wings clipped and actually is terrified of getting involved in another Middle Eastern war because it, the last one failed. Yeah. It's economically in a very, very weak position after the 2008 financial crash and doesn't want to get involved um, in the kind of conflict in the past in the unipolar moments it would have done. It would have, like, you know, you know, you think about, you know, Kosovo, Sierra Leone, um, you know, it would have kind of got sucked in. Barack Obama reluctantly agrees to intervene in Libya and it all goes wrong. And he's like, no, 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 I do not want to do this again. Like, you know, and that comes off the back of the failures of Iraq. He's a terrified of another Iraq, you know. And then the other side of it is, of course, U.S. relative decline or at least, you know, timidity is the increased confidence of other powers. So China is one of them, you know. Yeah. Russia is another in a different kind of way in that no one's going to pretend that the Russian economy is any good. But under Putin, it became more militarily assertive. And that's partly because it thought, well, look, firstly, it looked at the, the global chessboard. The US is no longer the only power on, on the block. We're going to get very close to China. And that's going to, you know, as long as China's on side, we're more confident to actually do things like annex Crimea, um, Get involved, get involved in Syria and go back to your earlier point, you know, dare to invade Ukraine. Now, that hasn't worked, but it certainly comes from that lack of fear of a pushback that Ukraine, that Russia would have probably faced in the 1990s. Yeah, uh, I, don't, I don't actually think uh, Russia needs to pour uh, soldiers into Ukraine to win the war. In fact, they're, 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 they're laying waste to the country. Uh, they will make it unlivable and they don't need soldiers for that. Yeah, and that's very much the, what they try to do in parts of Syria as well. They're basically, you know, you know, be king of the rubble, is the, you know, the classic yeah. quote, you know. Um, but moving forward, you know, and, and just to sort of continue the the, 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 the the Syria story is that, you know, those external dynamics, that kind of like rise of China, that, that step back of, 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 of the United States creates a vacuum in places like the Middle East, that means regional powers that previously would have looked to the United States for leadership 
start acting independently and start doing their own thing. Now, this is not new to the Middle East. They did that in the 1950s, like when the US wasn't that directly involved. But from the 60s onwards, you know, there wasn't really much going on without check, you know, check with your Cold War ally, check with the US, check with the USSR, um, you know. Whereas now, you know, you've got a whole host of regional powers, you know, Turkey, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Israel, United Arab Emirates, Qatar at times, Egypt and a few very localized places like Sudan and, um, and Libya acting independently and not like ringing up Washington for permission anymore. They, 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 ask, they ask for forgiveness, not for permission now. And that's a real change. Now, to go back to your point, that's particular to the Middle East. But you could see that happening elsewhere. You could see that happening in, in, in the South China Sea. You know, you could see uh, that happening, as you've already seen, in Eastern Europe, you know, where uh, the United States does not have the same awe and fear factor that it had a decade and a half ago. Um, you know, the US is, is a much more reluctant player. And, and yeah. that is what a unipolar, sorry, a multipolar world looks like. Yeah. The US is still the most powerful actor in the world, like without question, it's got the best powerful military and so on. But it's not unchallenged anymore militarily. It's certainly challenged economically. It's not, you know, it's the biggest economy, but you know, China's really close. A lot yeah. of countries, you know, a lot of autocratic countries especially look to China for help rather than America because no strings come with with the Chinese economic system. Yeah. Um, and of course, you, you know, you've got then the domestic situation in the United States, which is both on the one hand, a, relu a greater reluctance to get involved internationally than was the case yeah. in the past because of Iraq. But also, you know, the knock on effect of things like um, the Trump administration. You know, there's a sense that the US isn't as culturally appealing as it once was. Yeah. You know, you know, all that soft power is going as well. I'm not saying that China or Russia are more appealing, but, yeah. but America's lost some of its, its glamour. Um, and and I think that that's, you know, that has an effect. So I think, you, you know, you, you've got a, a weaker United States. And to go back to your point, you know, what it means for us in Britain and Ireland and, and places like that. Um, I think it means that you have a probably a more united West like I think, I think you're gonna, and you've seen that with Ukraine. Like actually, there's oh, you know what? If we don't stick together, we're in trouble. Which make, it actually makes a farce of things like Brexit, which are kind of like you know, Brexit and Trumpism in many ways, with this attempt to sort of break up the Western alliance. Yeah. And when actually, what the Ukraine war has shown, okay, we live in a multipolar world. We kind of need to stick together here. Or, or, you know. yeah. But at the same time, the West as a whole is a weaker global block. So the yeah. ability for the West to get what it wants done. Really good example of this, by the way, is recent COP27 climate change talks. The West didn't get its agenda through. Like, you know, there was 20 years ago, if it wanted to get something like through, it would have got it through because, like, you know, with the world's, with, with the collectively the world's biggest economy, what are you going to do about it? But you've got other players now. You've got China turning around saying, well, we're not going to cut emissions. Why should we? No, and I think I heard something somewhere that China, somewhere in the shallows of the South China Sea, brought in huge dredging machines to make an island yeah. for an air force base. Yeah. They do, they, 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 yeah. They, 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 and and they because they their their big point with China, China's big thing is to say, quite frankly, what are you gonna do about it? Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's it, you know. Well listen Absolutely fantastic chat with you, um, Chris. There's, uh, there's so much more. I'd be very interested now to... Uh, when's your new book going to come out? Uh, next summer, so summer 23. 
Okay, so you're yeah. you're in the weeds for now. You're you're right in. Yeah, it. yeah, I'm about I'm about two thirds of the way through it. Yeah. Okay, good, good, good stuff. Yeah, well, I'd be delighted to to read it and then. Oh. Uh, Maybe, uh, yeah, maybe pop on the historians. Uh, I'd love to talk about it. I'd love to talk about it. It's a more general, it's, you know, it's called Battleground and it's generally about the multiple conflicts in the Middle East today. And again, rather like what's happening in Syria, but across the whole region. So looking at, you know, how those regional, international and domestic players all interact uh, in particular conflicts, whether it's Yemen, Libya, but even political conflicts like Lebanon, Iraq, Kurdistan. Um, the Gulf. Neil, that'll be right. Neil, Neil will love that. Yeah, so <laughs> he'll, be here, he'll be here for sure the next time. So. Okay, uh, sure. So yeah, everyone keep an eye out for that. And uh, if you haven't read Battle of Syria, do pick it up. Uh, fantastic read. And thank you very much, uh, Chris Phillips, for coming on my story tonight. Thank you. Very best wishes. Well, listeners, really enjoyed that with Chris. Uh, tremendously nice fella. And an amazing knowledge of the Middle East, the cradle of civilization, and the cradle of a lot of the conflicts that we have seen in uh, certainly the last hundred years. Unfortunately, we're, we're talking World War One, the Sykes-Picot Agreement, um, the, uh, the death of colonial powers in the region. And this is what we have been left with. So hopefully in the future, will be better for the Middle East than the history has been. Fantastic, beautiful part of the world. And uh, for humanity's sake, we hope that it gets solved. Thank you very much for tuning again to The Historians. Another one with myself, Derek Mulligan. Please do leave a review, um, pop a like on the uh, program and subscribe if you'd like to get them and, and instantly download it on release. We are here every Thursday um, and we usually pop an extra one or two into the month so do expect about six episodes a month from us and check out our back catalogue if you haven't already done so. Thank you very much. Take care.